right, Southbridge. Great job singing. It's great to gather and, and sing together. I was telling the first service uh, that even if one day we are in persecution or technology becomes so good, you just want to stay home and watch messages online. You can get the content, the information like that. But there's something about gathering together and worshiping together. Uh, it's special to have corporate worship. And so hopefully you enjoy that as well and able to be a part of it. And sorry for you to get stuck out in the hall sometimes chatting and all those things and uh, miss out on some of those songs. We'd love for you to be in here on time and uh, be able to sing all these songs and praise Jesus and hear the saxophone for the glory of God and all those things. And so it's great, great to be able to do that. And it's the new year. It's the first Sunday after January 1st. And so we talk about new things and new things that God's doing. And we'll do some of that today. But before we jump into that, I want to pause and just spend a couple moments celebrating what God did over the Christmas season. You know, Christmas can be so chaotic with all the stuff that goes on, whether it's, you know, family gatherings, Christmas Eve services, and service projects, all the different things that we do. Um, sometimes it can all be a blur. I want to share with you a few things, stats that some of you might not know about our church from Christmas uh, time period, and then also just some events and things that took place, and just really opportunities for you to praise God for what He's doing. You know, every year we do uh, an outreach we've called the uh, Restaurant Outreach. We've got about 40 restaurants here in Briar Creek, for those of you who didn't know that, and they've got, you know, busboys and dishwashers and cooks and waiters and waitresses and hosts and hostesses and managers and all those folks. And we try to bless them every year as much as we can. And this year we had different groups go out, our different e-groups and different folks that went to restaurants, and we have you eat at the you know, be nice to everybody and then give a generous tip. But then after that, also give a gift. And I know some of you told us how that went, and there were some spiritual conversations about Jesus that were able to take place. Seeds were able to be planted. Um, some people, you know, had waiters and waitresses tell you, well, no one's ever done this. No one's ever given me a gift before other than the tip. And sometimes on Sundays, I've waited tables on Sundays. You don't expect to get a, even a tip. So it's great to have the, the gift. We had um, 250 gift bags that were given out to 250 different employees. And so I want to thank you for that. For those of you who didn't know that happened, that's cool. Just pray for those folks that you you'll come into contact with today. Maybe they were one of the ones and a seed was planted. Maybe some of you are here today as a result of that. Um, So we're glad of that. A lot of people might not know that Bridge Kids did some of their own outreaches. Bridge Kids are children's ministry, zero to fifth grade. Um, They were able to do some different things. One of the things they did it's what they called the Big Give, and they gathered together clothes and diapers, different tangible stuff that they gave to the Raleigh Rescue Mission to try and make a difference in the lives of the folks that go there. And then also, and you can see this if you go to the Bridge Kids Facebook page, I challenge you to do that today, they wrote letters to their one. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the one, um, we've got a vision as a church called 10X. So we're trying to multiply our impact in the city. And the way that we believe that happens is through each individual member of our church impacting other people. And so we've asked everybody that's a member to have one person they're praying would come to Christ, that they're trying to invest in, trying to make an impact in. And our children are even doing that. And so they wrote a letter to their one. And I want to read you one of the letters that I saw. There are about seven or eight of them that you can see on the Facebook page there. Um, but one of them said this, I love God, and I hope you love God too, Emma. I love that. It's so simple. Sometimes we make this difficult in the, in the process of what we're trying to do. Look, I have something I want you to have. I've got a relationship with God. I want, I want you to know that. And they're so pure and so simple to hear the little kids say those things. So the little kids did that. They wrote letters to their ones. We had a dollar offering last week. Uh, we had about $700 that was given to the International Mission Board. Through that, every fifth Sunday of the year, it's been our tradition to do a dollar offering in addition to our normal. On our normal tithes and offerings, we challenge you to give 10% of your income to the church as your tithe to God. And then we take 10% of that offering. We give it away somewhere outside of the church. But in addition to that, we do the dollar offering. And 100% of the dollar offering goes to something. We had about $700. Uh, given to the dollar offering last week. And so that's a, a praise that, that God can use that for folks like Anna and different people that are doing missions in that way. And then, uh, you know, we did the Compassionate Christmas series. We we're talking about God's compassion for us and our compassion for others. The third week of that series, we did uh, Compassionate Sundays. We talked about it, Compassion Sunday, in partnership with Compassion International. 
It's an organization that uh, exists to release children from poverty in the name of Jesus. And so they don't just educate and feed. They bring the gospel to, to those folks. And uh, what we ended up doing is focusing in on an area called Bolivia. We've, I think we've always done a good job as a church doing outreach in our city. And we're trying to expand our vision uh, beyond just our city, more global, and trying to be strategic. We picked one spot, Bolivia. And y'all sponsored 148 children um, through that. And so that's a, a huge praise for that and the lives that could be changed. And so we continue to pray not only for the life that changed of that 148, but then also the ripple effect as they impact their families and, and all the different things that can happen. And you can still be a part of that, by the way, if you want. Um, you can go to Compassion.com and find different children. You want to pick Bolivia and just say you're affiliated with Southbridge, then, then we'll keep you in the communication loop with all those things. In fact, I had a guy email me this past week that said he had watched the me- he wasn't here Compassion Sunday, he watched the message online with his girlfriend and said, we want to sponsor a child. And so I sent him the link, he went to the website, and he sponsored a child too. And so you can continue to do that, and God continues to work in that way. And one final stat I'll share with you. We had our Christmas Eve service. It snowed there, for those of you who didn't know it. WRL didn't cover it. I don't know why, but uh, there was snow in the building, and we sang some great songs, and we had a fun time with each other. But, you know, the, the message, the gospel-focused message, and give people an opportunity to respond, uh, we had 22 people indicate that they trusted Christ as their Savior that night. And so, yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for that. That's praise. All of heaven rejoices when that happens. So if you want to yell, you're like, woo! You know, yeah, Ric Flair can do, woo! You, you can do you can do one for Jesus, right? And so it's all right. Um, we, we rejoice in that, and those 22 lives being transformed and, and, and being changed. And somebody asked me at the door, this in the first service, you know, what do we do with those folks? Well, if they make themselves known, what we do is we send them a Bible. I send them a letter that talks about your next steps. One of the things we do is we invite you to come to a class that's actually down the hall on the right today, uh, Foundations class, which teaches foundations of the faith, things about like prayer. And today's Jared Wicks teaching uh, one of our members, Identity in Christ. And so you're invited to that. If you want the schedule for that and see the different topics, you can go on our website. Um, but we want to help you grow. And so if you didn't let us know who you were, your name, and you made a decision that night, you can write on your card today. Just tell us, and we'll get you a Bible, and we'll get you that information to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. And uh, we want to grow together as a church. We're going to continue today in a series we started before Christmas uh, through the book of Acts. And we are studying the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16 today. I'm going to start reading verse 11. You can go ahead and get there now if you want to on your devices or Bibles or whatever you brought with you for the Scripture. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll open up the Scripture together. Let me pray. Father God, we just come into your presence. Um, so thankful for you thankful that you've changed us. Uh, I pray for those that maybe they're here today because they're coming back to church. Thank you that they came here. Um, I pray your word would impact their lives. I pray that you would use your people to impact them. And I pray for each one of us that you'd speak to us, that you'd grow us, that you'd move us in a relationship with you today, that we'd be closer to you, that we'd love you more, we'd look more like your son Jesus, that you'd change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today we jump back into the book of Acts. Like I said, Acts chapter 11, or Acts chapter 16, we'll start reading in verse 11. And the series that we've been doing has been called Movement. You say, why are you calling it Movement? What are you talking about when you say Movement? Well, what I'm talking about is that the, story, the book of Acts is really the story of Christianity and how the church began. And the church, when it started in its very infantile state, at the very beginning, the first century, was literally turning the world upside down. It was a move of God. It was not just, you know, Sunday we gather together with people who dress like us and look like us and talk like us and vote like us. That wasn't what the church was intended to be. It wasn't a group of people that just came for some religious rituals to go through some motions and do some things and feel better about all the mistakes they made throughout that week. That wasn't what it was intended to be. It wasn't some movement to make the nation more moral. It's not what the church was. It was a move of God. And that's what it's always been intended to be. And how was it a move of God? How was it turning the world upside down? Well, if you watch different specials, you know, CNN will do them every once in a while, Fox News will do them, every once in a while CBS or 60 Minutes will do something about early Christianity. And how did this, why was it so different? Why was it turning the world upside down? 
And there are different scholars. They'll come from UNC, Duke, theological universities, all kinds of different places around the world, and they'll give their take on why it is that Christianity had the effect it had. And they'll say things like this. Maybe it was the political climate. And God's timing of sending the Savior was just right at this moment, and these things were happening. Some people will say, well, maybe it's because the early believers were so zealous, they were so passionate to get their message out. Some will give you stories, historical stories of the plagues that took place and how Christians were so sacrificial in their good deeds. Some people will talk about, well, maybe it was the persecution because Christians were willing to die for what they believed in. And all those things are probably factors. But what we see when we read through the book of Acts is this. God transforms a life. He turns the life of an individual upside down. And then he uses that individual to impact their world and eventually turns the world upside down. And here's why. It's because of his plan that he revealed to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he tells them what's going to happen. And he says, but wait, wait, wait. Don't go do this on your own. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And that happens when you trust Christ. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses. Do you know what a witness is? Anybody know? A witness is somebody who tells about something they've experienced. It's not an opinion. It's not just a belief. It's something they've experienced. And you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All the places that I'm going to have you go. And God knew the plan and how he was going to do it. And how he's going to use persecution to spread them out. How he's going to have them impact the world right where they were at. How he's going to change an individual life. And then he's going to send them by telling them go this way and send an open door. He's going to open the opportunity. Or he was going to close the door and redirect them and go somewhere else. And he was going to do all these different things to get them where he wanted them to be. And to be the people he wanted them to be. And here's the thing. He still does that. He's still doing the very thing he was doing back in the book of Acts. Whether it's the 22 people that trusted Christ at the Christmas Eve service, 148 kids in Bolivia, or you. He changes an individual life. And as he transforms that life, his plan is that that person is a witness for him and takes him to the world wherever he has them. And he shapes you and directs you and guides you to be the person he wants you to be and to put you in the place where he wants you to be. And so today, as today's the new year, I want you to contemplate this question as we go through this passage of Scripture. What new thing does God have for you today? What new thing does God have for you? Not this year, today. Because he wants to do a work in you today. And a new work doesn't necessarily just mean you come to Christ. Although if you haven't, that's what he wants to do. But if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you know Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this, that he is faithful. You can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, point of salvation, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So until he comes back, he's still refining you and making you more and more like Jesus. So what does he want to do in you today? What new thing does God want for you? And it might be getting rid of something that should be part of the old thing. Anger, jealousy, gossip, lust, something like that. It might be taking a new step of faith. It might be like the young lady we saw, stepping out by faith, going to Africa. It might be stepping out by faith into starting your own company, uh, making some, deciding to live in a relationship by God's principles. So stepping out by faith, living by faith with your finances, living by faith with your time, do, doing something along those lines. What, is, what new thing does God want for you today? And today we're going to see in Acts chapter 16, I'm start reading in verse 11, the new thing that God was going to do in the life of a woman named Lydia. The context for Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15 that we'll read is Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. And what happened there was that God was doing a new thing in the life of Paul and his team. He had a team now at this point where Luke, the guy who writes the book of Acts, joins him. You'll see he starts talking in the, uh, the third person where he says, we, 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 throughout this passage. Uh, scholars call it the we section. He's got Luke with him. He's got a guy named Timothy with him. He's got a guy named Silas with him. And their team wants to go and take the gospel someplace to Asia. And God says no. Wait, we're trying, to take the, we're trying to do a good thing. We're trying to share the gospel. And God says, no, I don't want you there. 
And say, well, we're going to try and go to Bithynia. God says no. And he directs them eventually to go to Macedonia, which is in Philippi, which is the town that he goes to, and it's in Europe. But God used no, which is very interesting and very comforting to me, by the way. I don't know if it's comforting to you or not. I don't know if you ever feel like you've got a decision to make. Maybe it's a big decision, career decision, marriage decision, some type of decision to make for direction of your life, and you're afraid to make the wrong decision. God uses no's. So you walk by faith. You continue to step out by faith. I know I feel a pressure sometimes, as a, not just to lead in this church, but individually. I think in my own, my own life, my family, I don't want to mess it up. I want to make sure I got it exactly right. And here we've got the Apostle Paul. The guy writes a bunch of the New Testament. If anybody has direct access to God, it's Paul, okay? Nobody a special favor here. But the guy writes some of the Bible. And God says, no, you got it wrong, Paul. You're going to the wrong spot. And God uses our, our decisions like that and the no's to shape us into who he wants us to be and to put us in the place he wants us to be. And God uses this to direct Paul, no Asia, no Bithynia. Yes, I'm going to direct you to Europe and to this one woman. And so everything's been going so smooth for Paul, so right, at least, for Paul, and the conversions and all those things to get told a no was a new thing. But then look at the new thing he's doing in this life of this woman named Lydia. It says in verse 11 from Troas, uh, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Salam- or Samothrace. And the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony. That means they were a free area without the oppression there. And the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. So Luke and Paul and the team. And verse 13 is where the story really starts to happen. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river. Where we expected to find a place of prayer. That was a phrase used to talk about a synagogue. We expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women. And that's significant. Because typically to have a synagogue, you had to have ten Jewish men. But there were apparently no men here. And so he points out to these women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia. A dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. Who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And then verse 15. When she and the members of her household were baptized, so the response to the message was she received Jesus Christ as her Savior. She heard the message that Paul was preaching, same when he had been preaching, a message of repentance. You're separated from God because of your sin. You don't just need therapy. You don't just need a counselor. You don't just need to feel better and think different thoughts. You need a Savior. And so Paul preaches this message. She responds, trusts Christ, receives new life. That's the new thing God's doing. And then she lets the world know she's baptized. And so are the members of her household that she's leading, apparently, in this home. And then she invited us to her home. Look at what she says to the Apostle Paul and his friends. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, you can fake your Christianity in front of a lot of people in a lot of different places. It's hard to fake at home, isn't it? And she's saying, look, if you think this is real transformation, come to my house. And they were persuaded. God did a new work in her life, a new thing. And that new thing was bringing her new life that she had trusted Christ. And then you continue to see God doing more and more stuff. It's not just salvation. It's the steps after salvation that take place. And so here we are. It's the new year. A lot of people have New Year's resolutions. Some of you have been procrastinating on your New Year's resolutions. You're going to do it today. And it's going to be to not procrastinate anymore, I'm sure. You've got all these different thoughts of things that are going to happen. 
Uh, statistics tell us about 50% of people make New Year's resolutions, and they usually are things like they're going to quit a bad habit, I'm going to quit smoking, I'm going to start exercising more, I'm going to start eating you know, better food, I'm going to start sleeping more, I'm going to spend less money, I'm going to save more money, and all these aspirations of things that we want to do. And, and typically, we know how this goes, we have aspirations we're going to exercise, and we like envision ourselves, look something like this, and really getting it done, pumping out those biceps, and... And, but in a couple of weeks, it looks more like this. That is hard work, getting a Cheeto from the plate without using your hands. I'm telling you, you can try that later today when you're doing that workout. So you, you see that. there. Oftentimes, we talk about that kind of stuff, though. Isn't that why if you think about your resolutions, a lot of our resolutions are lose weight, external stuff. It's stuff out here. Save money. I'm going to do, do this kind of trip. I'm going to have this kind of habit. I'm going to do these kinds of behaviors. And when I ask you, what new thing does God want to do in your life? It's not bad to lose weight. It's not bad to save money. It's not bad to get a new job. It's not bad to do all that stuff. But that's not what God's wanting to do in your life. See, what God wants to do is an internal transformation. And he starts at the heart level. It's not about your behavior. He doesn't just want you to quit smoking or stop swearing or whatever thing you fill in the blank with. He wants to transform your heart. That impacts eventually the outward stuff, but he starts internally. That's where transformation takes place. I remember there's a verse I used to, to joke about in college. We had to memorize it for a gym class that I had for college, actually. It's 1 Timothy 4.8. It says this, For physical training is of some value. I memorized it in the King James. The King James says this, that, that physical training is of little value. So I thought that means not even... So it isn't that big of a deal, what we're doing in this class, I'd say. It says, but godliness has value for all things. It's good to lose weight. It's good to save money. It's good to do those things, those external things. But what we're talking about is something that has eternal value. It's got promise for today. It changes your life here and now and for the life to come. That's what we're talking about when I ask you, what new thing does God want to do in your life? He's doing a new thing in the life of this woman in this passage. And the new thing that he's doing here required God to do something that's our big idea today. God opened her heart. And don't miss that. God's the one who opens the heart. It's not your job to open your heart to what God wants you to do. God opens your heart. It's the Lord that does it. John in the gospel says, no one comes to the Father unless the Father enables them to come. So you can't do it. And that also means those of you who are trying to lead somebody to Jesus or whatever, it's not your job to produce that result. You didn't do a bad presentation of the gospel if they didn't trust Christ. God's got to open their heart. We see it throughout the scripture. A lot of times as evangelical Christians, you're talking to somebody that's in a you know, cult that's work salvation, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, one of those types of deals. And they're talking all the good things, the good deeds you have to do in order to please God. And we'll quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it's by grace we are saved through faith, not of our works. It's the work of Christ. But practically as evangelicals, a lot of us act like it all depends upon us. Let me tell you this. God opens the heart. You see it after the resurrection. Jesus Christ raises from the dead. And you'd think his disciples, so many times they're, they're known as this. You have little faith, are you so dull? Those are the words that Jesus uses for his main guys. And then they see him raised from the dead. You'd think it'd be like, now it makes sense. Here he is. He raised from the dead. But you know what it says? Luke chapter 24, verse 45 says, the Lord's the one that opened their heart, their mind. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Now I've got to, see, I've got to open it to you. Those seeing we don't see, those hearing we don't hear. God's got to open our hearts. And why does God open our hearts? There's a second part to our, our big idea today. The second part is this, that God opens the heart because he has a plan for life change. God opens the heart because he has a plan for life change. That's an internal transformation of your heart that will eventually impact the things all out here. 
but it's an internal change that takes place. He's doing something new, and he continues to do this new stuff. I'm going to read you some verses. These verses don't excite you. You're dead inside. I'm serious. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says this, We were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Listen, in order to have the new life, the old has to die. In order for Jesus to raise from the dead, he had to die first. In order for you to have new things come, the old things have to die. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, pause, this isn't for everybody. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, this is, these verses don't apply to you. You are dead. You're dead in your sins. You are separated from God. It's not because you just need a boost. No, you need a Savior, Jesus Christ, okay? If you're in Christ, though, listen to this. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, new has come. Old is gone, death has taken place. New has come, and the new keeps coming. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says this. Think about the, the physical body. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. <laughs> If you just said that to me when I was like 20, I'd have been like, yeah, whatever. Every year, this verse becomes more and more real. <laughs> Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Hopefully, that one's becoming more and more real too. Being transformed inwardly, day by day. Philippians chapter 1, I've already quoted this one for you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this, he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He keeps doing new things to make you more and more like his son, Jesus. So what new thing does he want to do in you? See, God's the one who opens your heart, and he does it because he has a plan for life change. But go back to verse 14. That doesn't mean we're passive. God's the one who does the work. God gets the glory. God does the transformation. God's got a plan for life change. But what was happening with Lydia here? She was doing two things. One's at the beginning of the verse. One's at the end. Hopefully you can find it. I'll tell you what it is. She was listening, and she was responding. God was opening the heart. She was listening. God had a plan for life change. She was responding to that plan. And so the question for us is we ask ourselves, what does God want to do? Am I listening to what God has for us? And how am I going to respond to what God has for me? And you go back through this passage. This is verse 14. We started up in verse 11 and kind of what's taking place here. Verses 6 through 10, we already saw Paul was told no. No, you can't go to these places. I've got a different plan for you. And he uses the no to eventually get him to the spot where he wants him. Going to Macedonia. He sets sail, verse 11, he and his buddies. It's a boat trip, and we can tell from the wording of the passage it takes about two days, which means the wind was behind them. They stop overnight at a place called Samothrace. Samothrace is an island. It's dangerous to travel at night, so they stay the night there. The next day, they go to Neapolis. Neapolis is a port city, but then they're in Philippi. That's about a 10-mile walk, part of God's New Year's resolution for him. A 10-mile walk from Neapolis into Philippi. They get there. They're there for a couple days. The party really starts in verse 13. Verse 13, they decide they're going to go to the synagogue. And so they go and they look for this place of prayer outside the city gate. There's no synagogue there. There's no building there. There are no men there. You need 10 men in order to have a synagogue. Instead, you've got this small group of women that are gathering. They're probably there, and they're called worshipers of God. They're probably they're not really converted to Judaism, but they believe the scriptures. And so they're studying the scriptures. They're doing the rituals and the rites that would take place at a Jewish synagogue. And Paul shows up. Let me tell you what this would be like. This would be like if we had a women's Bible study, five to ten people, and uh, Billy Graham or Rick Warren walked in and said, can I share a couple things I've learned from the Bible with you? The women would probably be like, uh, yeah, that's, or, no, it's women only, get out of here, no. 
See, Paul is an accomplished scholar. He studied under a guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the most well-known teacher in his day. And he just shows up at this group study of these, these women that are meeting outside under the sky by the river. There's no synagogue here. There are no men here. This isn't an official gathering. They're studying the scriptures. And Paul says, I, I want to share some stuff with you. And then Luke zeroes in on this one woman who's listening. Verse 14. Her name's Lydia. And what does the Bible tell us about Lydia? You read it yourself. Don't count on me to tell you all this stuff. God did a, a lot better job telling the story than I do. Look at what he says. So she's a dealer in purple cloth. It's the first thing that we see. She's there, she's listening, and she's a dealer in purple cloth. What does that mean? That means she's wealthy. Because she runs her own business. Uh, she's from Thyatira, a place that would be known for producing purple dye, which is very rare. The only people that had purple clothes were either royalty or wealthy. It was prohibitive for people to buy it because it was so expensive, and so she makes a lot of profit selling it. And we know that she's wealthy because later in the passage, verse 15, I already read to you, you see that he, she's got a home where there's servants. And it's big enough to host these other guys to come there, and she can handle them. In verse 40, if you have your own copy of the Scripture, we don't have this verse for up on the screen, but you'll see that the church at Philippi starts to meet at her house. She's got a very large home. She's able to host these people. She's a wealthy woman. What else do we know about her? She deals in purple cloth. Then it also says that she's a worshiper of God. What does that mean? It means that she's converted in some capacity from polytheism, which would be what most people in Philippi would have. Polytheism means they worship many gods to the God of Judaism, monotheism, one single God. But she hasn't gone all the way. She doesn't obey the law. Modern day equivalent would be somebody like this. Um, They decide that they don't believe all the stuff that society feeds us is going to fulfill you. All the commercials you see, the movies you see, American Dream, fill in the gaps with all that stuff. And so they they think material stuff's not going to do it. They've bought stuff maybe, and they realize that I still have a void. And they realize getting married is not going to do it. And so the relationship isn't the thing. Maybe they've gone from relationship to relationship. They've gotten married. They didn't work. They got married again. It didn't work. And so they realize that's not going to do it. Had kids. Didn't work. Tried all the different stuff. Whatever the different stuff. Different experiences, encounters with people, vacation trip. Whatever the stuff. Didn't work. So they figure we'll try God. And they start going to church. Go to church. Agree with what the guy up front says. But don't take the final step and actually commit their life. Don't bank their life on what this book says. Don't commit to Jesus Christ. I had a friend I was talking to this week, goes to our church, he's a member here, was telling me about telling one of her coworkers about Jesus. And uh, told the coworker, you know, Jesus died for your sins. You're separated from God because you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. You need to place your faith in him. And the guy said, I believe that. I agree with what you're saying. Well, and I'm going to do it, but not yet. Not yet. Some of you might be there. Never met somebody that's there? It's like there's just something stopping them from taking that step. Some of you have deceived yourself. You think you've taken that step, but you're not really there. Mentally, you're there, but you're not really there. That's where Lydia is. Mentally, she, she realizes that other stuff doesn't work. She's a worshiper of God. She hasn't committed her life to Christ. Maybe she hasn't heard about Jesus, and, and the first time she hears is with Paul. Maybe she has, and she just hasn't taken that step yet. And that's what it means to be a, a worshiper of God. But then God opens her heart to respond to this message. How does he open her heart? Look what else we see in the passage. The very fact that a husband's not mentioned in this culture means this woman is either single, like she's been single her whole life, or she's a widow. So how did God open her heart? Maybe, like he did with Paul up in verses 6 through 10, he used to know. Hey, Lydia, things aren't going to go the way you plan in your life. No. And he used that to open her heart. C.H. Spurgeon, Spurgeon, old Baptist preacher. We spoke in Old King James, by the way. 
He says, it is not wonderful. That means it's wonderful. That the Lord can open a human heart for he who made the lock knows well what key will fit it. And what Spurgeon's saying there is God knows how to open each one of our hearts. He knows exactly what it takes for you and for me and for Paul and for Lydia. And many times it takes a no, doesn't it? Things aren't going to go the way you want them to go. Maybe it's a loss. Maybe that's what happened with Lydia, that she had this husband that she loved more than anybody else on earth, and he died. And that's why she's leading her home. Not how she wanted to do it, but it's the way that it is. Maybe she's been single her whole life. It's, it's hard to be single in any culture. This culture is different than ours. Can you imagine being a single woman in this culture? Be responsible for everything, running your own business? You know, they don't have the freedoms that, that we have now. So no, no, things aren't going to go the way that you want, Lydia. Don't open your heart. God uses no's all throughout Scripture. You start to go through the Scripture and you see it over and over again. Just think about, those of you teaching Bridge Kids, you tell our kids these stories of the Bible. Think about some of the stories that are familiar like that. Some of you maybe haven't heard any of these stories. There's a story in the Old Testament of a guy named Noah who builds a boat. And sometimes the way we tell the story is essentially like, God said, Noah, build a boat. And he goes, oh, okay, and I like animals. We'll make it really big. You know, it's kind of how it happens. That's not reality though is it i mean no one does that and we see that noah had a spouse and noah had kids and noah had a family and noah had other responsibilities that means that noah probably had a different plan for his life and god said no when god tells you he's going to destroy the earth that'll change your schedule just fyi you start to go through the book of genesis you see these other stories there's a guy named joseph in the book of genesis about midway through what ends up happening with joseph is he's a young man who has incredible dreams for his life and before any of that happens, God takes him through a dark night of the soul and has him go into slavery and into prison. I don't think that's how he had it planned. I don't think Joseph had that planned out that way. It was a no. Why? Because I'm going to change your life. And I'm going to use this to make you into the man I want you to be and to get you into the place I want you to be, Egypt, for him. Where we tell this story, we talk about Ruth and Naomi. Oh, sweet story of their friendship and the romance of Boaz. If you read the book of Ruth in the, in the Old Testament, do you know how it all started? Death. Someone died. It was loss. It was no. It's not how you had it planned. But he's going to redeem it. He's going to do something. He's going to change them because he has a plan of life change. You look, go, keep going. I mean, you just go through the Bible. You just find all these people. It's a no. It's not going to go the way that you want it. Do you think the disciples were sitting around making nets? Oh, I hope Jesus shows up at some point. They had a different plan. Their plan was not to leave everything and follow Jesus. God said no to your plan, and here I've got a different plan for you, and my plan's actually maybe harder, but better. And so it's a no to your plan. Do you think, dude, Joseph in the New Testament, <laughs> we just went through Christmas. You think that dude was planning that his fiance was going to get pregnant? Oh, by the way, God did it. That wasn't the plan. No to your plan, Joseph. Why? Because I've got a plan of life change, and that's going to change all of our lives. It's Jesus. No to your plan, and I'm going to use that to open your heart. And what did he do with Lydia? We don't know for sure. But he opened her heart because God made the lock. He knows how to make a key. The same is true for your heart. The same is true for my heart. And he opened her heart. But what we do know about her is that she was listening. She was listening. Are you listening to what God has for you? And a lot of people don't listen. You think you don't just say yes to that right away. Think about, are you really, are you really sensitive to what God wants for you in your life? Are you really listening to what he has for you? Because a lot of people don't, and there's a lot of different reasons. 
Some people, it's just straight up sin. So let's just call it what it is. It's pride. It's that you think you know or you think somebody else knows better what should happen in your life than God. And so you just do your thing. Look at an example in the Bible, Pharaoh. If you read the book of Exodus, come on, man. Like, you don't see this is God here? Frogs and night and flies. Take it easy on yourself and just admit it. But we got hard hearts. So those seeing we don't see and those hearing we don't hear. We're not listening because there's sin in our lives. Some of us, let's be candid, we're friends and family here. Um, We're lazy. We want God to speak to us in some supernatural way where he writes it in the clouds. And here's why. Because we won't look at his word with all the thousands of things he's already told us. We don't pray. We don't do the spiritual disciplines. And so we want God to show up and compensate for that. And we say that we want to listen to him. We don't. We're lazy. You don't really want to hear from God if you won't even listen to what he has to say already. Some of us, if we're just being candid today, uh, it's because there's so many idols in our lives, so many false gods that are filling up our life. There's no room for God. And we'd like him to fill a gap of the emptiness we still have from following these false gods. But the reality is there's so many false gods there. He's not speaking to us. But I think there's another group of us, and I think this is probably a larger group, is that some of us don't hear from God because we're afraid of what he might say. Because we want him, really, if we're candid, most of us, we just want to be able to say, God, here's my plan. You cool with that? Good. All right. Otherwise, we don't really want to hear from you. And so it's kind of like, have you ever gotten a phone call from somebody and you see the caller ID and when you see who it is, you're afraid to answer it? <laughs> you don't want to admit it because they're sitting by you, right? You get, the, you get the call. Sometimes you get the call and you see it and you know who it is and you're like, I don't, they might say something I don't want to hear. And so you send out a voicemail. And that's how we act with God. Sometimes we don't want to hear from him because we're afraid of what he might say and what he might say might be something we don't want to hear. Fear is the reason why we don't listen. Because we're afraid. We're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of what might happen, what might be the worst case scenario. So no one likes that stuff. We had a situation this Christmas. One of my daughters, our six-year-old daughter, Ava, we were afraid. What was going to happen? We ended up, we were over at my brother and sister-in-law's house for Christmas on Christmas Day. And I had eaten lunch, and it was a great lunch. My mother-in-law made brisket, which is awesome. I don't like ham, by the way. I know that makes me weird for Americans, and I don't like turkey. I don't like, I don't maybe I've had too many. Uh, 37 years old, I've eaten too many turkey dinners, apparently. Um, I overate on brisket though, so I still kept the, the tradition, and so I stuffed that into my body, and uh, went and laid out on a chair in my brother-in-law's house, and I'm sitting there, and then I hear this screaming from upstairs. All the kids were upstairs, which was great. They were kind of contained. It was awesome. We got about 10 kids that were up there. They're playing, boys in one area, girls in another area, and they're having fun, but then somebody starts to scream, and you know how as a parent you know when it's one of yours? That was one of mine. I knew it was a scream. It was one of mine, but then Shannon was upstairs, so I was like, I can keep being lazy. This is awesome, so I sit there on the couch, and uh, and I, what I heard that happened was that our daughter, Ava, who's six, had broken a glow stick and gotten it on her. And I thought, well, whatever, we'll borrow some clothes from a cousin. She'll be fine. But then the screaming kept getting worse. And uh, my nephew eventually said down the steps, uh, it sounds like someone's being tortured. And I was thinking, Shanna probably needs reinforcements. Jog up the steps and go in there. She's holding our daughter under the sink faucet with her head in the faucet and, and got the water pumping in there. What ended up happening was she broke the glow stick. It busted in her eyes. Now, I'm not a chemist. I know the stuff they put in those glow sticks is not a natural chemical. Green glowing stuff. Have you seen it at the circus or the fair or whatever? And so she breaks it. It goes in her eyes. It's in her nose. Shanna's washing her, you know, washing her face off here. She's screaming. The longer I'm in there, the more tense I'm getting at this moment. And kind of panicky. And then my daughter starts saying, am I going to die? Am I going to die? Like she doesn't know what's going to happen. So she's freaking out. And I was doing okay until she looked in the mirror, had her eyes open, and said, I can't see. 
And so then I was like, is my daughter going to go blind? Like, I didn't know at that moment. So then I'm getting tense, and Shanna's dunking her head back underneath the water. And eventually she gets to the point where her eyes are really puffy and stuff, but she can see. And I start doing, how many fingers? How many fingers? I cover one eye, make sure she's not pretending now. People are calling poison control and the doctor and all those different types of things in the other room. And it was just Ava and I in there at one moment. And I said, well, let's just let's keep rinsing your eyes out. And Shanna wasn't in there. And she's like, is there anybody else who could help me? And like, trust me, trust me. You just need to wash your eyes out here. And she didn't, she didn't want us helping her because she was like, mom's basically waterboarding her, right? She's like holding her under the thing. And so I'm like, we just keep, let's keep rinsing your eyes out. She goes, can we pray? Can we pray? So, all right, I'll pray. And I prayed. Then she prayed. When she prayed, she said, God, do you know if I'm going to die? She didn't trust me, apparently, in, in this deal. And she's wondering, God, do you even know? This is so scary. I'm not sure I even trust you at this point. Been there? I want to share something with you. I'm learning. I'm still in the process of learning this one. I don't know if I have this right or not, but just tell you a little bit about when I'm talking to God, just the two of us are chatting through my life. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is that, so he's totally sovereign. He's in control. His plan for us is he wants to be glorified through us and that his plan is the best plan. But what if his plan is like my worst nightmare? So think about that. What is your worst thing that could happen? For my daughter in that moment, it was lose her eyesight or die. For you, maybe it has to do with lose a spouse, lose a job, lose something. Um, Some bad could happen in the future. Something happened to one of your kids. But what if that's his plan? Will I trust him then? Because it all comes down to trust, by the way. I've said this to a couple of you. We're out at the door and we'll talk about, you know, we'll do a series or something. And you'll come up and say, yeah, this series is how it spoke to me. I'll say, come here. Here's the secret. Every message is about the same thing. Trust God. Everyone. And I don't care if we're talking about sexuality. I don't care if we're talking about finances. I don't care if we're talking about end times. Okay? It's all, it all boils down. In all circumstances in life, every passage of Scripture, it all boils down to the same thing. Trust God. You don't have to come anymore. He got it, right? I'm just kidding. So I know the answer. I know the answer is that I need to trust him. And it's like mentally I'm there sometimes. Emotionally I'm not there. So God, what if your best plan to glorify yourself through my life and make yourself known for me is suffering, is pain, is loss. Will I trust you then? If I can get to the place where the emotional, not just mental answer to that question is yes, then guess what? Anxiety goes away. Worry goes away. Any kind of problems really go away because you just acknowledge that he's, whatever's happening, that's the best thing that can happen in my life. Now, it might be the worst thing from our perspective. He knows a little bit more than us. And it might not be what we would design. But it's better causes us to trust him more, to know him more, to reveal him more. In that moment for my daughter, her thing was losing her eyesight or dying. And she was afraid that that's what was going to happen. She did not lose her eyesight. She is still with us. About an hour after all that happened, her face is still puffy. We're laying down on the couch in the basement. We're just talking about stuff. She says, I'm so glad. She said some great things about just revealing her heart. But one of the things she said was, um, I'm glad that I'm a Christian. And if I would have died, I'd be with God. Isn't that the most basic essence of it? I mean, if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, dying is the worst thing that could happen to you. If you have a relationship with Jesus, it's like the best thing that could happen to you. You get him. And we say to live is Christ, to die is gain. So to die, to be with him. I think I've got the last part. Emotionally, I think I'm at the last part. Dying would be good. I would, I would, that'd be okay. I'd be okay to die. The hard part is if I, the worst thing happened and I still had to stay here. Any of you identify with that? Because emotionally, I'm not sure I'm there with the to live is Christ. 
because I've got plans. I've got things. I want, I want things to go smooth. I was praying the other day. God put big things before Shannon and I. And I stopped, and I was like, uh, what does that mean? And he's just kind of just praying. His thoughts come to my mind. I think in my mind, big things means victory over whatever circumstances, success, whatever that thing, like good. It doesn't mean death. It doesn't mean dismemberment. It doesn't mean, you know, losing things. But what if that's what it means to God? What if that's the big stuff, big pain, big suffering? Because in the suffering, you'll get to know me and my son Jesus more. He died before he rose. The death wasn't easy if you haven't read the Gospels. There has to be a death before there's the resurrection. There has to be the death before there's the new life. Some of us, we don't even want to listen because we're so afraid of what he might say. Are you listening? What does God want to do in your life? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, let me tell you, he wants to save you today. He says in the scriptures, he's not willing that any would perish. He's been waiting. The reason why his son Jesus hasn't come back because he's waiting for people to turn to his son Jesus. And for you, that might be what you do today. That's new life. Old is gone, died of the old way of life. Place your faith in Jesus. He gives you new life, abundant life. Some of you, maybe you're a believer in Jesus, but you've got sin. You've been trying to deal with it. You've been trying to make resolutions and discipline activities, and you've got a plan, and uh, you're going to stop eating this food. You're going to stop looking at this stuff on the computer, and you've you got plans on how you're going to do it. You've been doing it on your own. Here's the deal. It won't work. So don't even try it again. The only thing that works is called repentance. It means this. You stop, but you don't just stop. You turn to God. You've got to fill that void, the void that you were filling with porn or food or whatever your thing was. You've got to fill it with him. And he shows you he truly satisfies. So that's the new plan. I'd love to help you as a church, by the way. You get talk to somebody in a group if you're in an e-group. Talk to somebody there. Talk to one of our pastors, pastoral counseling, celebrate recovery, dealing with hurts, habits, hang-ups. We'd love to help. You got to turn to him. Some of you, it's take a step of faith. It's not the negative; it's the positive. And we have the courage, the boldness, the trust to actually step out by faith. Whether it means going to Africa, like the young lady we saw earlier, whether it means quitting a job, trusting God in your finances, trusting God with some relationship, trusting God in whatever way he's speaking in your life. Some of you, it's dealing with past hurts. Isn't that that so many people are debilitated from walking with God because of something that happened a long time ago? Something they did, something that's been done to them. That's one of those hurts that we talk about in celebrity recovery, hurts, habits, and hang-ups. It's unpacking that, letting it be in the past, and moving forward. What new thing does God have for you? Are you listening? And we don't know exactly how he spoke to Paul up in verses 6 through 10. A lot of people speculate. A lot of people guess at what it was that happened there with Paul. Well, how did he know no? A lot of times we assume because he was an apostle, God just said no, like an audible no. But Luke doesn't tell us that. In fact, he tells us that he sees a vision of a man in Macedonia. Do you notice he's talking to a woman in Macedonia? The man in Macedonia, some scholars uh, say is Luke, who's a doctor. And some people speculate that the reason why he says no in verses 6 through 10, what he used was his health, that his health went bad. We know Paul had bad health. We read about it later, it's thorn in the flesh. And so maybe Luke comes into the story here, and that's why there's the we sections. Verse 11, did you notice? We put out. Verse 12, we. And then verse 13, we went outside. We. It's, Luke didn't say that stuff in the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts. It's now he's on the scene as a doctor here with Paul. Maybe that's why we don't know. Are you listening? You seeing what God's doing? We do know how he spoke to Lydia. It was through his word. She responded to Paul's message. You go through all of Paul's messages. They're always the Old Testament scripture pointing to Jesus Christ. And so some of you think about listening to God. I'm not talking about sitting out on a field and hoping that God magically writes something in the clouds. What has he already said? You ever go to pray to God and you start talking to him and he's like, I've already answered that in my word. 
I've asked for forgiveness before. I said, God, will you forgive me? And he's, I felt like he's impressed on my heart. I've already answered that. First John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, I'm faithful, I'm just, I'll forgive your sins. Ever ask God a question? He already given you the answer? He's not going to keep answering it. He's already told you. He's got thousands of things written down in the scripture for you. He's speaking. Are we listening? But you can know the answer, and that's not enough. You've got to respond. That's what we see Lydia do here in this passage. End of verse 14. We'll see quickly. She responded to Paul's message. How? She asked Jesus to be her savior. And then she goes to her home, apparently shares Jesus with the people in her home. And then they all get baptized. And so there's multiple. It wasn't, she didn't go like this. Paul preaches about how Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. There's salvation in no other name of the name of Jesus. And she goes, that's a good message. Come on, ladies. Now she surrenders her life to Jesus Christ. And God does a work in the individual's life. And she goes and she becomes his witness. Leads the people in her home to Christ. So we talk about 10x, by the way, as a church, and multiplying our impact. Let me tell you how this works with Lydia. What we see as we track through Lydia's story is that she comes to Christ, and then she goes to her home, and she leads the people that she cares about the most, the people that are close to her, her ones. She leads them to Christ. And then we see that she invites Paul over after that to come to my house. If you think we're really, we've really been changed, come to our house. And she persuaded them. In other words, I want them to hear from you the same things you told me. I want them to grow. And at the end of chapter 16 and verse 40, we see that there's a church that's now meeting in the church of Philippi. You know, the uh, book of Philippians later in the New Testament starts here with this one woman. She comes to Christ. She leads her ones to Christ. Then the church starts to happen, transforms a city. It's the first person to come to Christ in Europe. So a continent comes to Christ through this one person. Who's your one? And then, guess how the gospel gets to America? It's from Europe. We're obviously skipping some history here. But you eventually heard the gospel from this one woman coming to Christ. Aren't you glad that God told Paul, no? No, you're not going to Asia. No, you're not going to Bithynia. I want you to go to Europe. I'm getting the gospel to Bill, Steve, Lisa, Lydia, Scott, Jana. I've got a plan. It's a plan for life change. And God's the one who knows how to open the heart. And he's going to change the life. And so do you know what he wants to do? Are you listening? That's not enough. Because I can tell you hundreds, maybe thousands of things God wants to do in your life this year. And you can know that information. The question is, what are you going to do about it? She responds. She doesn't just hear, oh, that's a good message. She decides, I'm going to do something. I'm going to surrender my life. Then I'm going to start telling other people. Then I'm going to get baptized. And then I want people to come to my home. Then I'm going to be a part of a church. And then I'm going to be part of a movement of God. What about you? I can tell you all kinds of stuff God wants to do in your life. God wants you to be saved if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, he wants you to be holy as he is holy. He wants you to mourn with those who mourn. He wants you to be meek. He wants you to be humble. He wants you to stop being so self-centered. He wants you to stop being angry. He wants you to stop gossiping. He wants you to stop being jealous. He wants you to stop being greedy. He wants you to become generous. He wants you to stop depending on your own works and your own righteousness and trust in the righteousness and treasure the righteousness of Christ. He wants you to find all your delight in Jesus. I can keep going. There's hundreds of them. He wants you to find joy in him. He wants you to find peace in him. He wants you to find happiness in him. He wants you to find satisfaction in him. He wants you to have real self-control, that spirit-led control. He wants your mind to be transformed. He wants you to be new. He wants old things to go away. He wants you to be free. The truth sets you free. He wants you in his word. He wants you to dwell upon it. How does a young man keep his way pure? By dwelling on your word. He wants to direct your path. How does he do that? Through his word, the lamp unto your feet and the light unto your path. Then keep going. There's hundreds. So what? What are you going to do? God opens the heart. He has a plan for life change. Your role, listen. What does he want you to do? And respond. What will you do? Let's pray. Father, 
we humbly come before you because you are the potter and we're the clay. And you're molding and shaping us. And many times we try to make you who we want you to be. But God, will you make us into who you want us to be? Will you transform us? Will you change us? Will you get us to the place where we will trust you? Trust you completely. Trust you wholly with our minds. Trust you with our sexuality. Trust you with our finances. Trust you with our time. Trust you with our words. Trust you with our our careers, our professions, our talents. Everything about us, God. Will you get us to the place of trusting you? And for those who don't know you yet, will you open their eyes? Will you open their ears to hear that your son Jesus loved them so much he died so they could have life? And I pray they would trust your son Jesus as Savior right now. I'm talking to you, not talking to the Lord right now. Each one of us, as we come before the Lord, have, have things that we need to deal with, things that we need to do. If you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, I hope you'll do that right now and just admit your sin before him and ask him to be your Savior. Others of you are followers of Jesus Christ and, and God wants to do a new thing in your life. We're just going to give you a couple minutes to talk to the Lord about what that is. And so I'm not going to pray for you. I want you to just talk to the Lord.